following message is from Narrative Church, a Lutheran church located in Williamson County, Texas. For more information, go to www.narrative.church. Let's pray together real quick. Lord, as we talk about life together, as we are the church, let us hear this morning that it starts off with who you tell us we are. That last week as we learned about being in the hands of Jesus, the first thing about that is our identity. So this morning, Lord, I pray that you would teach us about that. In your son Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if you've ever been known for something. Um, you know, that someone would say, okay, I'm going to call this person because they are the blank person, right? They know about this thing. I always hoped like that would be something cool for me, but I was driving, um, actually doing some hurricane relief stuff uh, with my buddy Tanner. And Tanner and I were driving from up here in Austin to Houston, and my truck bed was full to the top with trash bags. Because I called my friends in Houston, I go, what do you need? And they go, we can't get our hands on construction-grade trash bags. We're having to muck out all these houses, and we can't get trash bags. So I called a couple churches in the area. Narrative came together, and we put a bunch of money in and literally filled my truck bed up. I went to three different Home Depots and filled up my truck bed with trash bags. It was the funniest cargo haul I've ever had. But so my buddy Tanner goes, don't go alone, I'll go with you. We'll make, you know, we'll have some fun. So we're driving down to drop it off at one of the churches we're connected with over there. And as we get there, um, you know, we're just driving, we're having good conversation. And Tanner goes, well, yeah, you know, your thing is Coke Zero. And I go, what? He goes, yeah, you're the Coke Zero guy. And I go, Tanner, that's the worst. <laughs> what, what do you mean? He goes, yeah, you know, I think, when, I think of, when I see a Coke Zero, I think of you. I go, well, okay. I, you know, I'm okay with my nerdiness now to be the Star Wars guy. Like, I'm okay with that. At least there's, you know, some of that. I'm okay, you know, with my vocation. Maybe I could be the preaching guy. But no, I'm the Coke Zero guy. <laughs> Which was funny because I texted Tanner this week. I said, hey, you're going to be in the sermon on Sunday. He goes, oh, what for? And I go, <laughs> that time you made fun of me for Coke Zero. And he goes, I wasn't making fun of you. Just when I see a Coke Zero, I think of you. I'm like, same thing. Now, Tanner, Tanner's a spoken word poet. He has worked so hard in this process of how do you become known? How do you make a living out of this? How do you do all those things? So he's very active and understands social media and YouTube and those kinds of things. And he works to like break out and he gets in front of churches and does those kinds of things. But his greatest tweet ever was one where he all caps locked, complained about how he watched a woman in an airport throw away the center of a cinnamon roll. The most engagement he's ever had. He has these deep poems about who we are and how there's hope and who Jesus is. But his most connected with tweet is about how he called a woman who threw away the middle of a cinnamon roll a monster. <laughs> now the funny thing is every year this comes back around. He tweeted it three or four years ago. This, like two weeks ago, he got a DM from Cinnabon. <laughs> 
like actual Cinnabon. And they were like, hey, can we use your tweet? He goes, I'd love that. And they are like, cool, what's your address? We want to send you a little thank you. He goes, great, do you need a spokesperson? He said they didn't respond to that. (laughs) But as I talked to him about how I was going to be talking about identity and the whole Coke Zero thing, now, to be fair, my Sunday post-church ritual is I, you know, we tear down, we get everything, I get in the car, I call my mom, it's my weekly check-in with my mom, and we talk about how church went, how church went for her, how it was for me, but I pick up a Coke Zero from Sonic on the way home. So, like, he wasn't wrong. But sometimes we get caught up in this, you know, oh, the Coke Zero guy, oh, you're the Cinnabon guy. Like, it's not what you want to be known for, but it becomes like this weird identity piece. And we live in a day and age where identity is constantly talked about. Now, I don't think this is anything new. I think you look at Ecclesiastes and Solomon or or Kohelis, the teacher, writes and says, there's nothing new under the sun. I don't think this is actually something new. We just, it's just blasted at us. You know, it's drinking from not one fire hose, but like an entire like fire truck of fire hoses of like who you should be, what you should be about, who like, like the world wants you to be, the things you should talk about, the things you shouldn't talk about. They're constantly coming at us to say, this is who you are. And it's all dependent on, and there's a list. Now, the struggle I think sometimes we have as the church is we buy into that. And so sometimes we build our own list. That, yeah, there is, you know, a secular list out there of all the things you need to be, but also in the church we go, well, here's our checklist of identity. And what it ends up being is a new type of what we call works righteousness. That instead of our identity being focused on who God says we are, it becomes on what we think we need to do to gain salvation. Now that salvation may be, for us as Christians, we think it's salvation, you know, in front of God. In a more secular light, that might be a salvation of good works in front of the world. But we as humans, as humanity, struggle with that. So what I want us to do this morning is to step back and look and say, what does God say about us? And if we are a community together, if last week, as we talked about saying, listen, we're all held in the hands of Jesus, that we are the community together, life is spent together, what does it mean for us to have that identity founded in Christ? So let's start at the beginning. Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. So this verse in Genesis 127 gives us a foundational piece of theology. It's called the Imago Dei. So spelled I-M-A-G-O, Imago, Dei, D-E-I. The image, Imago, Dei of God. So this original theology we have is that we are created in the image of God. When God looks and he says, 
They are created in my and our image, a Trinitarian idea. He is saying, I am bestowing upon this piece of creation my image. Now, when we think about image, don't think about image just as like, if we took a picture of God, he'd look like us. Maybe. Think of it more, though, as saying, imbued in us are the things of the Creator. That in His ways and who He is, that is how we are created. And it gives us some ideas. Three things I want us to be thinking about. It says we are created beings. The Imago Dei tells us that we are created It tells us all people have inherent value. That if we are created, then in that creation, we have value. Not for any other reason than that the creator created us. And then in that creation, God has purpose for our lives. Think about when you create something, when you do a house project, even if it's just painting a wall, there is purpose behind it. So too, we as created beings have purpose. Now, there's a problem that happens though, that if that's what the Imago Dei tells us we are, we are created beings, we have inherent value, and we are created with purpose, the enemy takes those three things and builds lies off of them. The first is this, you are an accident of biology. You're not created, but in fact, you are just a bunch of cells that came together and whoops, here we are. The theory of evolution that would say, oh yeah, no, you just randomly, things started hitting together, next thing you know, fish. After that, they walked on land you know, oh, now they're monkeys, and now, you know, we're building McDonald's, right? Like, that's that's the theory of evolution. Now, there's micro and macro evolution. We're not going to get into evolution today. But I want us to think about the identity issue that comes behind that theory. Because the identity issue that comes behind the theory of evolution is that you, you don't have a created reason, but instead, it's just a random reason why you were here. Sometimes I think we we get caught up in the science of that idea and we lose the fact of there's a scientific way to explore who we are. I don't think we as Christians should be afraid of that because we go, listen, this is a study of how the creator creates. I have good friends who are scientists my brother-in-law isn't a biologist, but he's, he is, um, he's machine electrical computer. That's his gig. He went to MIT twice. He is way smarter than me. In fact, to the point where like, he doesn't use smart speakers in his house because he knows how they work. Now, we don't use smart speakers in our house because I know he knows how it works. I'm like, well, if he doesn't trust it, that, you know, when I look at this projector that turns on on Sunday mornings, I go, magic! We connected everything right, and there it is. And he would tell you, yeah, well, you know, this, like he could pull it apart and name to you the things that are going on. I'm like, right, there's some wizard in there that's just projecting this image. 
Same thing with biology, right? I don't think we should fear biology. I'm all about us learning more and understanding and diving deeper. But what we have to remember is that we have this lens of being created. So the enemy would work to say, you're just an accident. Just an accident of biology. The enemy would argue people's value comes from judged worthiness. Now, I'm not talking about who wins a trophy, right? That's, that's a whole different discussion. But I'm talking about your worthiness to be and exist is based on what you contribute, is based on what you believe, is based on what you do. The enemy takes and twists that all people are inherently value-filled and says, no, that's not true. In a scientific sense, we call this eugenics, where it would say we need to eliminate certain groups of people so that our gene pool is that much richer. Socially, this shows itself when we judge others based on their skin color, on their bank accounts, on their accomplishments, on their beliefs, instead of on the value that God places on them as created beings. That The enemy would take and say, there is not inherent value here. That in fact, a person's value is only found by what they contribute, by what they can give you, or by how much in agreement they are with you. The enemy would lie to us and say, God doesn't have, there, there's no purpose in your life. We live, we die, somewhere in between we pay taxes. And that's it. Now, what branches off of this idea is what we call humanism, which says, okay, if nothing matters, if we're only here for a short time and who cares, well, then we're going to try our best to accomplish this as humans. Now, you can see this, that humanism has taken on a new light over the past 60 years. If you go back and look at the TV that was happening in the 50s, 60s, early 70s, everything had a real positive outlook. Everything was going to get better. There was a utopia on the future. You look at the science fiction of that day and age, a very humanist idea that we can achieve these things. That in the 80s, we see, in fact, that there is Star Trek The Next Generation, and there's a whole thing about everything is utopia to the point where we don't even need money anymore because everything is great, which is so comical because, like, they're always shooting at someone. Like, everything's great. We did it as humans. But quickly, shoot that other thing. But if you look how TV has changed from them to now, everything's dark and falling apart, and there's no hope, because the end of humanism is, oh, we didn't make things better. Things are still bad. We're still struggling. And it's this lie the enemy tells 
that says there is no purpose. There's no reason. And so instead of focusing on where God calls and his purposes, we focus on here and say, how do we make here better for us? Or how do we enjoy here now? Because it doesn't matter because someday we're all just dust in the wind. You're going to be humming that the rest of the day. So for each of these pieces, there are these lies that are told to us that you're an accident, that you are unworthy, and then it's all meaningless. Let's look at John 15. Because you see, the enemy's going to lie. He's going to try and step into that imago day and tell you it's wrong. And actually, we're looking at Corinthians. Sorry, Jonathan, that's on me. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 and 21. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. For our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let me read 21 again. For our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, while the enemy is lying about the Imago Dei and saying, here's the truth about it, because I think we feel those things. We feel sometimes that I'm just a mistake. Why am I even here? We feel, am I even worthy of any kind of love? We feel that there is no purpose. We just wake up, we do our job, we go to sleep. We feel those things. And God knows it because he knows the enemy is lying to us about who we are. And so when he looks down and sees people trapped in sin, he knows one of the pieces of being trapped in sin is that our identity becomes consumed in sin. So we believe the lies of the enemy. So he steps in and he made Jesus who knew no sin, who knew perfectly who he was, what he was to become sin for us so that we might know the righteousness of God. So that we would know that we are created by God, that we have value, that we have purpose in our lives. We are created beings, and the Creator does not abandon His creation. When we felt this way, He did not leave us behind, but instead sends Jesus for us. He says, all people have inherent value. Jesus comes to save the whole world. Sometimes we get caught up on who's Jesus saving. John 3, 17 tells us, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The purpose of Jesus is salvation for everyone. Now, that is through belief in him, through faith, through baptism, through all of those things. But he doesn't come just for a select few. He comes for the world. So if he comes for the world, doesn't that speak towards God's valuing of us? 
Think about that. So often we can get caught up in, woe is me, I'm a horrible sinner, sackcloth and ashes, let me go in a dark corner and die. And God from on high looks at you on that day and says, you are worthy of my son. Do you think you don't have inherent value? Even as a sinner, he looks and he says, no, 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 I want you back. That he looks and he says, no, you have value. You have enough value for me to send my son for you. God has purpose for our lives. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. Notice it's not a new salvation, a new angel. No, it's a new creation. You are created with purpose and you are made new. So as my favorite seminary preaching professor would say, what does this mean for me on Monday? This is great for me to tell you in your identity that God has created you. He loves you because of your inherent value that he has put there and that you have purpose. But let's look at what this means. And now we're going to jump into John 15. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. I want you to hear that. I have called you friends. This isn't like God is up there going, oh, these people. He's going, no, you're my pals. You're my buddies. Let's go hang out. I have called you friends. He called you friends and invited you in to that relationship. Created beings, God calls us friend. Verse 16, you did not choose me but I chose you and appointed that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. All people have inherent value. God chose you. Not some nation, not some church. God chose you. Specifically, don't put that in some generalization out there. God chose you, the creator of the universe, who knows everything, who looked and said, you know what would be great? Dogs. He goes, you're my friend and I'm going to choose you. So you don't think you have value? The heavens were created by a God who says, you are mine. God has chosen you. Verse 16, 17. The second half of 16. John, do you have 17 up there? Yep. Thank you. I didn't do it. These things I command you so that you will love one another. You have purpose. There it is. It's that simple. Love one another. God has given you purpose. Like, like literally, he just said it right there. Boom. Love one another. You've got purpose. So that brings us to our question for this series. If we are a people of a resurrection, what does our community look like? Well, first, it starts with this identity that we are created beings. We are friends at God, of God at all times through the cross, we don't have to try. He calls us friend. 
we have inherent value. As a chosen people, we don't only see our value, we see the value of others. That if he has chosen us, we say he wants to choose everyone. That in fact, his heart is for nations, for all people. Our goal is not to assign value to people, it's to show them that God values them. That we should be a people that if we are chosen, should seek to say, let us tell you about how God has chosen us and how he seeks to choose you. And that God has a purpose for our lives. Love God and love others. Not just with speech, but in action. In all that we do, he gives us that purpose. These things are the core of our identity. So what does God say to you as a resurrected person living in this community? Your identity is given to you. It is not something you have to go searching for, but it is instead a gift, a fulfillment of the Imago Dei gifted to you through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Stop trying to think about how do I become a better Christian and start waking up in the morning going, I am a member and a friend of God. Watch that viewpoint, that little shift change how you see the world. If you wake up instead of going, how am I going to try harder to be a Christian today? Wake up and say, hey, I'm a friend of God. That is who I am. Not because I say it, because he did. Because he looks at me and this is what he says. It is a Trinitarian outlook on identity. I want you to say these things with me. I am a friend of God. I am chosen by him in my baptism. I have purpose to love him and love others. You want to know what it means to be a Christian? There it is. And you're going to take your entire life learning what that means. But stop trying to find the, what's my identity? Where is it? Who's telling me? God tells you. This is it. I realized as I was thinking about this, a lot of times at the end of communion or sometimes during prayer, I'll cross myself, right? Just a quick cross, which has no earthly meaning except reminding myself of whose I am, right? It's not like making the sign of the cross is the final, like, piece of the magical thing that God all of a sudden goes, yes, you did it. I wasn't going to bless you, but then you moved your hand like that. It's a reminder of who God says we are. I am, let's make sure I get this right. I'm a friend of God. I wake up in the morning knowing that that's who he says I am. I am chosen by him in my baptism. He has chosen me. My heart is full of what he has done. That relationship is all his. He has done that. There's nothing I could do to fix that. I am his friend and he has chosen me. But then he gives me purpose. To love him and love others.
simple way to remember. I am his friend. He has chosen me. And I love him and love others. It's that simple. We seek identity in all kinds of things. The world tells us one thing, that we find identity in our sexuality, in our accomplishments, in all of the things of this world. If I only had them, I would find that identity. Sometimes we even see a righteousness built on works that says, if only I am good enough, but I am here to tell you, the identity you have is yours already. You don't have to seek it. You don't have to look for it. Even if you don't know it is there in your baptism, it is yours. That God calls you friend He has chosen you, and he says, love me and love others. And that's it. And that forms and transforms what we do as a resurrected people living in community. What does your week look like when you wake up saying, God calls me friend? How does it transform when you interact with people and say, he chose me. I know the depth of my heart. I know my struggles. I know those things. And he chose me. Because you see, as those two are connected, it gives us a freedom to say, I don't have to worry what other people look like, how they act, what they do, who they are. I know whose I am. And what God has called me to do is to love him and love others. That is the makeup of the Christian identity. Simple and straightforward. My prayer for all of you, whether you're with us here, joining us online for Narrative Church in 15 years, is that whatever we do, we come together knowing that. Say it with me one more time. And I invite you, if you want to, you don't have to, feel free to cross yourself. In fact, I'll even look away so you can, don't feel like I'm watching you. Just feel free if you want to join me. I am a friend of God. I am chosen by him in my baptism. And I have purpose to love him and love others. Lord, let us walk out of here with that. We are weary of searching and trying to force ourselves to find an identity when you have already given it to us. Lord, let us rejoice that we are your friends. Let us walk as a chosen people who are unafraid because you chose us. We don't have to ask about our own action of choosing. You chose us so we can live in that knowledge. And Lord, let us be known as a people who love you and love our neighbors. We pray this all in your son, Jesus' name. Amen.